Ben Carey. How are you doing? Karis Myrick, how are you? I'm fine. I'm really good. And I am so glad that you're here and we're having this conversation on Unapologetically Black Unicorn. And okay, let's just be frank. You are not Black person. Correct. <laughs> right? That's correct. But, but yes. you are an Unapologetically Black Unicorn. So I love to let people know that Unapologetically Black Unicorns do not have to be African-American. They can be all sorts of people. I'm very honored to be identified as one, Karis, by yes. you, that's for sure. Yeah. So, so what I probably should say is, what? Who the heck are you? I'm sure a lot of people know um, that you know you uh, are a journalist. You are a journalist for the New York Times, covering the mental health or behavioral health beat, as it were. And that's how I got to know you first. Of course, reading you know your work, and then eventually being um, meeting you in person at a I think it was a SAC symposium um, right. that you facilitated. And then you did this really interesting series called Lives Restored. Can you talk a little bit about that series? Yes, I can. I'd love to. I mean, um, mental health treatment or the mental health world, I think, is different, is, is unique in medicine or broadly in treatment, because really there are two cultures, or I should say that uh, the, the, the patient or the person being treated that is one culture and the treaters are another culture and they're very different and they don't necessarily trust each other completely. I mean, that's not true in cardiology. I mean, you can hate your cardiologist, but, but more, more or less you agree that, okay, my heart is bad and this, this person's trying to fix it, right? Mm-hmm. Psychiatry or mental health care is different. Um, it's a controversial area. There's lots of disagreement about what's the appropriate treatment and so on. Many people are mistreated by the system. And so you really have at least two probably many, but at least two big worlds that are very different and that are sort of looking at each other over a divide. And one, one part of half of that is the professional world, which is an important one is psychiatry and psychology and social work and so on. And that's a very important one with many caring professionals who by and large uh, have not had the experience of being treated, having persistent and recurrent mental distress, really having, you know, your, your, your life undermined by something you can't really control. And so, and that makes for a huge divide because the people who are being treated have had that. And so there's a, there's a gap there. And so what I wanted to do was to try to tell the story of mental health care from the other side of the, uh, of the fence, it's a little bit like uh, the, the David Simon. I think it's David Simon who did a Homicide, uh, which is a story about cops in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. He's a journalist, former journalist. And then he did The Wire, which was essentially the same story, only he's telling it from the other side, from the drug dealer side. Now, that, that's a much bigger production than I was capable, of course, of doing, but that was the idea. And the best way to do that, I thought, was to profile people who had... A, a lifetime or a life with dealing with, you know, mental distress, um, severe mental distress, and who had learned over time how to, how to manage that, right? You were one of those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marsha Linehan was another one. Marsha is a famous in this world, as you know, and Marsha had herself been struggling for many years. Marsha Linehan, for those who, who, who may not know her, is the, um, uh, the person who developed what's called uh, dialectic behavioral therapy or DBT, mm-hmm. which is uh, 
designed initially or intended for to help people with who are suicidal, but now is widely used for all kinds of things, including drug abuse. In any case, Marsha was one of the people too. And then there were, there were, there were three others, different people with different experiences, different backgrounds who were old enough to trust that the experience of being covered and being featured in a newspaper article would not be destabilizing, that, that they could handle it. Mm-hmm. And that, that they had enough experience to talk about all kinds of stuff that they tried, different quirky things, idiosyncratic things with some humor, and, and that their experience, at least collectively, would open up the great variety of things happening in the world of mental health or mental health care. So, so that was the idea. And I tried to put all the experts or so-called experts, i.e. the, what do you call it, the sort of academic experts, that is, that they too, I think, almost all of them, also had a history of, of having had mental health care themselves. Mm-hmm. That, so that, that was the idea of that series. And I was lucky to have the chance to do it and to get that much space to put those stories out there. That was, that was the paper making decision. Jill Abramson making a decision. This is important. Yeah. They were all on the front page of the paper. Yeah, it was pretty powerful because they were on the front page of, was it generally the Sunday, which has the, at the time, had the highest, um, what is it, distribution readership? I'm not quite sure. Is it, is yeah, it, the highest readership. Yeah. yeah, well, this is back in the days when there was the print. Some people yeah. paid attention to the print edition. But yeah, Sundays has always been the highest readership. Yeah. Um, they weren't, I don't know that they were all on Sunday, but they, couple of them were at least. Yeah. Mine was on Sunday. Woohoo. <laughs> but what I what I loved about the series though, I, first of all, is that you know you looked for a diversity of experience as well as diversity of of people. Meaning when you asked me would I be um interviewed for the series, you know, I went to ask my father because I'd be exposing myself clearly yeah. and, and wanted to use my full real name. I, I don't know if that was a requirement, but certainly I wanted to use my full real name, which is my father's last name. So I wanted to make sure he was okay with it. Right. Right. Um, and my father he was involved both, too. He was yeah. involved too. That's right. Oh my gosh. And what happened afterwards with him was really interesting, but he, um, he said, uh, why do I want to do it? And I said, you know, if if only one black person reads this is helped and kind of understands what a person can go through, what recovery can look like, that it is a hard journey, but it, it's, uh, it, it can happen. Then um, it's all worth it to me to expose myself, if you will, ex- expose my story uh, yeah. uh, uh, with you. And so, um, you know, so he agreed and, and he also was interviewed, as you said, and after the story came out, people were calling him for support (laughs) veterans actually because he's a veteran veterans were calling him and asking him for advice and support which i thought was really 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 neat but the other thing that happened is i think this also speaks to the power of the story from a recovery aspect and sort of lensing on what it's like to live this life it also shined a light on um the stigma that was so pervasive so there was somebody actually who worked with my father. That person had a son with uh, the same diagnosis as myself. And the two of them never knew that they had adult children with the same diagnosis. They were going through the struggles and also the triumphs solo. 
not talking yeah. to each other. And then when the story hit, that's when the uh, person that worked with my father told uh, him about, you know, their adult um child. I don't want to be outing certain things. To me, it was really interesting that that there's stigma and people don't talk about it. Yet here we were on the New York Times having gazillions and millions of people uh, read about it either in print or online. So um, very powerful series. What other kind of things do you think we miss when we don't include or or try to highlight the experiences of those who are... um, impacted by the mental health system? I mean, as a journalist, what have you seen? Well, I I think that, you know, as I talked about before, that there are, there's some distrust in this area between the professionals and the people being treated. Mm -hmm. And I think by, if you ignore one half of the equation, then the distrust spreads to, to, to journalism, to broadly, like, like no one cares, no one understands us, you know, this is just, the system, the man don't care, you know, it's all about money or that can promote that kind of thinking. I mean, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, mental health, I mean, you pick your phrase is, is as big as human experience almost. Mm -hmm. It's a huge thing. And psychiatry is a small, very small part of it. It's an important part, of course, which has an outsized access to as a, you know, as a, um, as a science a science of mental health. Psychology also is a small-ish part of it. But human experience is much, much broader and, and it's much more powerful even in a single person than any of those professions can possibly understand. And so if you're going to be writing about, you know, talking about mental health, then you need to respect that it's a lot larger than any one field or any two or three or four fields. Mm. And that the heart and soul of it is in the individuals who, who have had to basically fight for their own stability or maintain their own you know, moods in order so they can function and you know, make money and so on. And so to me, that is the much larger part of, the, of this universe. And so it is important, of course, to follow what's going on in psychiatry and psychology, even in brain science, which is even more distant. But in, in the end, the bulk of this world is, is, is in this collective human experience of, of distress, uh, of fear, and of trying to find your, your footing and your way forward, and knowing you can. And um, when you started doing this work, did you, over time, sort of come to this sort of realization that, um, you know, we could be doing much better, we could be covering this in a different way? I mean, I find it interesting, you know, for science writers, how they even end up in covering mental health. And, and you stuck with this this entire time. So, yeah. Yeah. How did how did you do that? I was I was fortunate to to have a beat called the behavioral beat where you could move it around. You had lots of freedom. So, you know, you, you would cover studies, you know, findings. You could look at brain science, psychology, psychiatry, sociology, pharma. I mean, there, there was a whole range of things you could cover. You could essentially cover anything. Um, it, was a, it was a beat that also was high in demand whenever, when big news stories broke, you know, especially shootings, but also violence, you know, with the police and uh, any number of stories, uh, you know, trials, all of those are available to be covered by someone who's sitting there in the behavioral beat chair, right? Because presumably, 
people who think about and understand human behavior will have something to say about those things. I always thought that the paper should have a, a group of reporters covering mental health. Mm-hmm. At one time, sort of back in the day when I started, the big newspapers had two people, usually, you know, in the area of mental health. One of them would be in Washington covering mental health policy stuff. Mm-hmm. So that was a policy, usually a policy reporter. And the other person would be sitting, you know, in L.A. or New York or Chicago, and they would be writing more about treatment and controversies within the field, so on. Now, it, that policy person is gone, and most of the people covering mental health exclusively um, are also gone. I mean, I was, I was one of the last. And, wow, um, really? Yeah. So now it's become a thing that where reporters who have other specialties or other beats will will dip in and, and pick up mental health stories. But I always thought it should be a focus where a newspaper would have like, say, six or eight reporters even covering mental health care because it's such a big area. Yeah. And because it's so important and because readers care so much about it. This is probably the number one topic for readers, number one. Wow. But anyway, for me personally, I was able to, to make a, a living, a career for so many years because I was able to move the beat around a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't always the same stuff. It was, it was changing. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed reading your columns over the years because sometimes it would be either, well, it would either be the lived experience story or it would be brain science or it would be pharma it would be policy. It could be, um, you know, a number of things. And so that does kind of help us see that mental health, this isn't one thing. It's a broad array of things, as you, as you said. And the other thing I appreciate too, is that and not all journalists did this, do this. Matter of fact, I was reading an article the other day and was a little kind of like, wait a second. It was about uh, mental health and technology. And everybody who was interviewed was doctor, this doctor, that doctor, the other. And not to say a doctor can't be a person with a lived experience, but no one was speaking to, but what do we as people with lived experience need in order to use technology to um, aid in our recovery? Like, Nobody asked anybody with that yeah. kind of side of the equation of the lived experience. So I appreciated in many of your articles, you know, you had a mix of people who had expertise from the doctors to the lived experience to the peers, homeless advocates, et cetera, family members. So, you know, you uh, left the New York Times retired and wrote um, a really, really wonderful wrap up article that, you know, spanned your number of years and also said, hey, here's some things that we need to look at um, in the future. Can you talk a little bit about that article and sort of what you were trying to convey to the public about the important things that have been covered, as well as some of the things that need to happen? Yeah, you know, I, I had a kind of a fairly well column and good for them for, for letting, letting me do that. I think it was a nice way to go out. I'm not an angry person at all, but I was, I was writing in anger because I had really hoped, and look, I came in as a science writer. I was covering science, which can mean lots of different things, right, particularly in behavioral health. And I think all science writers will want to, to be there for something big that's happening, some big advance that changes, you know, the understanding of, of uh, in this case, mental health disorders, and particularly that would help people. Mm-hmm. And I certainly wanted to be there for something like that, to be able to report uh, about it and to be sort of present at the, at the, at the creation of, you know, some new science of mental health. But 
Of course, mental health is a lot of things, it's just, and it's still very early days. Um, and I just I became so frustrated that for all those years, there I was covering this finding and that finding and this controversy and that. And really, nothing had improved in the care of people with mental distress. I mean, really nothing. You know, there was some fringe stuff happening, like psychedelic treatment, which is promising, and and even some brain implant stuff, which sounds scary, but it's also promising, but not really widely applicable. Mm-hmm. There, But there were no new medications, very few new psychotherapies, no reforms in the actual way that the treatment's delivered or the way that people are brought in, nothing like that. And, mm-hmm. and all this money had been spent, uh, public money, taxpayer money on, on these huge science, you know, boondoggles of just chasing after genetic genes and, and, you know, developmental kind of findings. Mm-hmm. The money in the science was to me, being spent poorly, and this is, of course, taxpayer money, and it wasn't helping anybody, mm-hmm. and, 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 and won't. It's not, it's not going to. So, And on the commercial side, now, the, the pharma side, of course, pharma was spending its own research money to basically corrupt the study of, of its drugs. Those drugs can be very helpful, as we know. But the research became a promotional operation with very much the cooperation of academic psychiatrists. And so, so that literature, that science now is virtually, it's so polluted as to be unreadable. So you don't really know what you're seeing anymore. Hmm. So on the one hand, you have, you know, all of these academic researchers studying, you know, drug treatments. And you, you, can't, uh, you can't interpret the, the reported findings because there's so much drug money yeah. there. And then on the other hand, on the public side, you have all this money. I mean, I mean the, the, it's, it's swallowed up all the money into this very basic research. It's going to the same researchers and institutions every year in the hopes of finding something, anything. I, yeah. I, you know, and in the meantime, sitting here in the middle, and, and I, hear, I heard from family members and from people in distress all the time in this job because they, they had no idea, is, you know, is this trustworthy data? Um, what does this mean for me? And, and the answer was nothing. It doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, at least the public research. And so I was frustrated because I was, I was just thinking, couldn't we just have more research that directly aimed at helping people like now or soon? And that could include not just, not just drug treatment, but new psychotherapies, new ways of bringing people into treatment, reforms in the system. And, and also, of course, thinking about how to bring in people with lived experience to aid in getting people help. Yeah. So, so those are all things that are, can be done and researched and looked into, but nobody's doing. And so, you know, to sit there as a, as a journalist and not really be able to, to, to address these things in a big way is extremely frustrating. I mean, Everyone wants to find something that helps people. I mean, the drug companies do, the psychiatrists do, the researchers do, the brain scientists do. Yeah. But it's not happening. And, and I think that there needs to be um, some more honesty about what's going on at the top um, to make this change. So I'm going to ask a question. And this might be sort of a tough question to answer, and I don't, might not even have the answer. You might have some thoughts about it. But, you know, I think a lot of times some of it is coming from our advocacy. I'll, I'll just, this is my sense of it sometimes. Yeah. And I'll, I'll use, you know, the Lives Restored 
at least my, my story as an example, that, you know, the story was really about me finding myself, number one, I didn't really have yeah. to have a lot of insight about my illness, I had to have a lot of insight about who Karis Myrick is, was, and is going to be. Um, and mm-hmm. I had to kind of come to all of that through having, um, you know, this diagnosis. What coming through all of that kind of landed on was, wow, you know, work is kind of like the thing that does it for me. Yeah. If I'm, if I'm working in something that is challenging and really expands the use of my brain, my mind, um, and I'm passionate about, then I tend to do much better and I have to kind of be yeah. engaged in that work. Right. And, and it has to be very, it has to be a pressure cooker, which is kind of opposite of what everybody thought, but that's kind of what we came to the conclusion of. And so, you know, you hung out with me for, I think it was five days. I think it was a week where you were, you know, out here in LA and, you know, we went to work and, you know, went to, I think you heard me speak at some events and um, those kind of things to kind of figure out what's going to be the center of the story. And, you know, the, the hook or the center of the story was that, you know, I was this executive and that's how I stayed well. Yeah. And I'll never forget though, after the story came out, a lot of people contacted me wanting to know, well, what medication was I taking? <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> well, wait a minute, that's not what the story was about. Um, and, uh, you know, I even counted the words of the story and how many times, you know, we did talk about medication and there, I don't remember how long the story was now, maybe 2000 words. Let's just pretend it was 2000 words. Yeah. And yeah. there were like, three were three sentences about medication out of this 2000 word story. And, but everybody wanted to know, well, what medication I was taking. And so I think that's kind of where we double down on sort of the fix. This is going to be the fix. If you're taking good medication, then um, you're able to live this life. And yeah. I think it was a little bit opposite for me. I was able to live this life and then kind of back into what medication would help me live this life versus the medication being first. I, again, you know, it's my personal story. That's how it works for me, not to say that that's how it's going to work for everyone. But what I'm kind of getting at is that sometimes I think when we do our advocacy work, it's like, well, there's no more research in pharma for schizophrenia. We need more research in pharma for schizophrenia versus thinking, okay, maybe we do. And, you know, what about something like, um, you know, the early psychosis research that was actually taking the program and putting this, the science and putting it right into practice quickly. Yeah. And and why don't we do more of that, you know, and advocate for more of that across the spectrum, because we have the early psychosis program, we have outcomes from the early psychosis program, but we have no spread of the early psychosis program. We don't have any spread of that program into other disorders like um, bipolar disorder or, you know, depression where people are crippled by depression we don't have an early depression program, you know? So yeah, I'm wondering why we, you know, are there things that we should be thinking about differently as advocates around some of these things? Do you know what I mean? I do. Look, I mean, first you talked about early psychosis programs, which are programs that are aimed usually at young people who seem to be pre-psychotic, psychotic, and then brings them in very gently allows that person to be participant and equal participant in choosing care, right? So that's, that's the model you're talking about. It seems to work pretty well in, in places it's been tried. Although it's hard to get into those programs. They're, you're lucky if you can find yeah. one. But I think no matter whether it's psychosis or depression or bipolar or severe anxiety, PTSD, whatever, you know, the important 
point, critical period is the first, is when the person is first interacts with the system, whatever that is. Okay. And that mm-hmm. could be, you know, calling a VA center. Uh, it could be, it could be showing up in the ER. It could be, it could be calling a therapist, you know, it could be picked, being picked up on the street. That, that first interaction when there's a person who needs help and there's help out there, but that person doesn't necessarily know what that help is and doesn't know whether to trust the people who now are, are right there talking to mm-hmm. him or her, right? Or trying mm-hmm. to get that person in. So that's an extremely important place in, in mental health care and in a place where the system fails so often uh, mm-hmm. because people lose trust right then and there. And especially, you know, a lot of them are already paranoid. So now you have this stranger telling you that, oh, I'm here to help you. So it's not like it's the fault of the provider necessarily, right? I mean, yeah. they're, they're trying and then, and this is a, a very delicate situation. So for me, I think one place where you could see improvements, you should have peers involved from the very beginning. So if you're a person with psychosis or substance abuse issues and you're slightly paranoid and you're certainly scared of the cops and you certainly don't want to go to the psychiatrist, you should have somebody who says, comes up and says, hey, let's say for you, that's a black woman. For me, you know, it's, I don't know what, somebody who's got more experience and who knows what you're into Mm -hmm. and can say, hey, listen to me for a second here. I, I have you. I got your back. You can call me. I will guide you. I will be your advocate. I am your person. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you don't want to do this, you tell me I can, you know, the more that that can be the initial experience, I think the more likely people are to be open to then trying different kinds of treatment, trying it on like, you know, like a jacket, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise you lose people right away. And also people of course get referred to you way too heavy treatment Mm -hmm. when, with a peer there early on. And by the way, by when I say peer, I mean a trained person who's obviously have the experience and has some specialty in knowing how to do this. Mm-hmm. You now have an ally, someone you can trust yeah. that's not in the system necessarily. And so I think that's the most critical thing that could be done and needs to be done quickly. And initially, like right when people are in crisis. Yeah. I'm sitting here trying to form words and the words are like, yes, let's double down on that. There is, there is no reason why that can't be done other than at least what I have seen is a fear of somehow peers are either going to lead people astray, which is sort of a mm-hmm. false belief of, yeah. you know, the, the system or medication that, and I think it's been better in the last couple of years, but there was a period where peer meant anti-psychiatry, anti-medication. And that's like, oh, I don't know if I look that up in the dictionary, that's not what the word peer means. If I look at the training that certified peer specialists have to take, there's nothing in there in their training that says, tell people not to take their meds. (laughs) You know, as a matter of fact, you know, we, we support people in making choices and being able to have conversations about medication versus saying, take it or don't take it. We are agnostic about the medication situation, right? Um, We're agnostic about a lot of things other than supporting the person to find um, that coat that fits, that mental health care coat that fits, right? That's our job. Um, And I think that's totally misunderstood. And I think the other piece is that somehow we're going to replace psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, and case managers. 
And there are just too many people, especially after the pandemic, that are going to be in need of some kind of mental health or emotional um, support that they're not enough of anybody. I don't even think enough, there are enough peers yeah, to help no. all of the people who need support. Right. So somehow this idea that we're going to be replacing people, I think is sort of a, a, a false kind of, um, it's a distraction, another distraction. So yeah, no, I agree with you about uh, our um, you know, willingness and need to um, really expand the peer workforce and peers who are meeting people, especially at first interaction, you know, folks who are, you know, out on the street, um, meeting somebody who's had that experience before, far more likely to be trusted. I think my fr- a friend of mine, a friend of ours, Paul Cumming, I think, you know, remember Paul, Yeah. you know, used to okay. call it rapid engagement, that peers have this ability to do rapid engagement, while other folks may struggle with being able to engage with the person as quickly as needed. Are there, are there any other things you think we ought to be looking at? Well, yes. I mean, as you, as you know, I think that last, we were talking about that last article. Mm-hmm. And, and as I said in, in that, that, you know, one part of the job that wasn't public, you know, it was one that I couldn't really talk about uh, was that I was, became the person people called when they didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. So some of those so there's a number of people in the in the building in the New York Times who came to me over the years and some friends and family members, but most of them were readers who who were desperate. Uh, you know, they had a brother, they couldn't find him. He was psychotic. What do I do? Uh, you know, or my daughter's suicidal is coming out of nowhere. Oh, my God. You know, we've been to psychiatrists and she doesn't like it. All of these questions. And I would answer them with a disclaimer. <laughs> That look, I just play one on TV kind of thing, but um, and I realize there's just no central place um, to go when you're in that situation. Mm-hmm. It's the one thing you want the most, the most, the most, the most, the most. Mm-hmm. You want to talk to someone with knowledge, mm-hmm. a humane resource mm-hmm. with the full range of options available, who can talk you and and, and connect you to a peer. Mm-hmm. You just, there's no place to do that. You people go to Google, they call friends, someone knows a psychiatrist. It's just very random. And so I think too, that there should be a central uh, switching station call number, not just a list of services, but an enriched one where you have people who can give you knowledge and give you connection to a peer and also can describe to you what the range of services are. Right. It's, it's sort of a, it's a mental health GPS, which is what my partner is working on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that without that, you don't have any way to provide quality check on mm-hmm. services. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, here's a hospital here and a hospital there. And then, you know, there's a therapy organization, you know, clinic. And then, and then over here is another PTSD clinic. They're not talking to each other. No one knows nothing. People are being discharged. There needs to be a central place where people can call or go to to get guidance to go from a b to c to d that kind right of thing. right you know i'm involved in in a, in a in a nonprofit that's working to to try to provide that wow. so that people will get help directly immediately mm-hmm. um, i mean who hasn't who hasn't needed that right? yeah exactly exactly <laughs> you know if it's not yourself it's you, it's your kid or your yep or your mom or your whatever or um, your neighbor who you end up calling the police on when in fact you could be calling the mental health gps you could be yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. That's the other, you know, that's the other thing that I think that's needed because the, this system is not going to be it's too chaotic. It's not going to be organized by some specific reform that addresses just one thing like cops mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. something like that. It needs to happen from the ground up mm-hmm. and to have a central sort of switching board place with knowledge to guide people to the, the right path. Wow. Or a good path. A good yeah. path. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't wait till we have our mental health GPS. It is something that's needed. And I think, again, the time is the time is so ripe. You know what I mean? With the, the everybody coming out of the pandemic, it's a global pandemic. We all are experiencing some level of emotional distress or trauma going through the recovery aspect of it that, you know, having a place to go to talk through any way in which a person's been affected by this time period is going to be so needed. So the idea of a mental health GPS, I'm down. Works for me. Good, uh, good, good. <laughs> so um, peer power. Peer power. Yeah. That's right. Oh yeah. Peer power. Peer power. Yeah. I, I just uh, yeah. posted on somebody's LinkedIn. You know, it's raining peers. It's not raining men. I mean, it could be, but it's raining. <laughs> it's raining peers. So uh, Ben, I want to thank you for joining me on Unapologetically Black Unicorns and for being a just take no prisoner, unapologetic black unicorn and sticking with us in your journalism career and even after. So thank you so much. Of course, of course. How, how could I turn you down, Karis? Yeah. And all right. All the black unicorn. I mean, I feel I need to get a bumper sticker or a t-shirt or something like that. You know, I, <laughs> I will have to send you some unicorn horn. Well, you have your own unicorn horn. I'll send you some unicorn ears. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll wear our unicorn ears collectively as a, uh, they're called a marvel of black unicorns. So (laughs) thanks for joining in everyone and uh, look forward to having you join us next week.